0: Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear his word today. Well, I wanna say welcome to you who are joining us in person. And for those of you who are joining us online and on TV, thank you so much for being here. I wanna say welcome to our Bible Center family. And I also, also wanna give a word of shout out to those of you who may be new. I'm Pastor Matt, I'm the lead pastor here at Bible Center. If we yet, haven't yet had the chance to meet, I look forward to meeting you very, very soon. I wanna to begin today by asking a question, a very simple question. What comes to your mind when you hear these three words? God is love. God is love. For some, maybe you're thinking uh, more religious thoughts, like you're, you're thinking about God's forgiveness and God's mercy and God's goodness. But maybe for others, maybe you're thinking more earthly thoughts, things like a warm crackling fire or family or friends. But for most of us, those three words, God is love invokes some positive feelings. So I'll give you another test. What, what comes to your mind when you hear these four words? God is a trinity. God is a trinity. Do you have the same thoughts and feelings that you had when I said that God is love? For most of us, when we hear the words God is a trinity, we think of an old dusty textbook or we think of a monotone professor going on and on in a classroom that, in a class that we wish had ended a long time ago. For others who may be a little bit older, maybe we think of the Da Vinci Code. But for very few of us, the thought of God being a trinity uh, brings the same positive emotions as the thought that God is love. But today, I want to fix that. If you could summarize my goal for this sermon, it would be to fix that so that from this point forward, when you hear that God is a Trinity, the same feelings, the same response would well up in your heart, that wells up in your heart when you hear the other truths about God. The goal of this sermon is that you'll leave here enjoying God much more than when you entered. I can't remember a message that has gripped me more than studying for this message this week. Now I know I say that quite frequently throughout the year but this one is is one I've never preached on the Trinity. I've never really taught extensively on the Trinity and really other than seminary, I've never really studied much about the Trinity. But you see, it's only when we grasp what it means for God to be a Trinity that we can really sense the beauty and the overflowing kindness and the heart-grabbing loveliness of God. If the Trinity were something we could shave off of God, we would not be relieving Him of some burden or some challenge. No, we would be shearing God of precisely what is so delightful about Him. I'm gonna argue in this message, I'm gonna propose in this message that God can't be good unless He's a Trinity that God can't be loving unless he's a trinity. He can't even be a savior unless he is a trinity. And so when we begin to appreciate the doctrine of the trinity, it will change everything about us. I was thinking this week about uh, what I'm gonna be sharing and how that even these truths from the scriptures change our appreciation for music. They change our appreciation for for beauty. They change our appreciation for how we pray and how God invites us to pray. It makes for happier marriages warmer dealings with others. It, it makes for a better church life. It's what gives Christians the assurance of our salvation. It's what gives us a desire for holiness and I believe it will transform you the way it has transformed me this week studying this age old truth. Now I'll ask the question, does someone need to believe the Trinity or should I say it this way? Does someone need to understand everything about the Trinity In order to be saved? And I would answer that in the negative. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I didn't fully understand the Trinity when I came to faith in Jesus as a child. But what the Bible does teach is that a a thinking person cannot deny the doctrine of the Trinity and still call themselves a believer. 1,500 years ago in the Athanasian Creed, we hear this, Whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the orthodox faith, without which he shall perish everlastingly. And the orthodox faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Those are some pretty strong words. The Russian theologian by the name of Vladimir Lossky wrote this, If we reject the Trinity as the sole ground of all reality and all thought, we are committed to a road that leads nowhere. We end in despair and in folly, in the disintegration of our being in spiritual death. Between the Trinity and hell, there lies no choice. And so I'll ask you, do you think those statements are true? They're very bold statements, but I'll be upfront and let you know that I believe they are true. And I believe the doctrine of the Trinity is, is more than just something dusty in the back of the library. In the next few minutes, I wanna, here's the big idea. Here's what I wanna communicate. The Trinity is the foundation of our faith. If you remember nothing else from today's message, remember this. The Trinity is the foundation of our faith. It's not extra credit. It's not something on the side. It is the very foundation upon which we build everything else. Here's what the Bible teaches. Number one, the Bible clearly teaches there is one God, creator, sustainer, and ruler of all. There's one God, creator, sustainer, and ruler of all. We see this all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy chapter six. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now in this particular passage, let's let's not take this verse to teach that there is no Trinity or that God is a mathematical singularity. But in this particular context of Deuteronomy 6, Moses is calling the people to put the Lord above all other things, to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength. This verse does not prove that God is not Trinity. You say, how do you know that? Well, if you're taking notes, you can write Genesis 2.24. In Genesis 2.24, the Bible uses the same word for one to describe Adam and Eve. And even though Adam and Eve were two persons, he says that they were one flesh. And so there's a a multiplicity in singularity. James 2.19, James, the half brother of Jesus writes this, "'You believe that there is one God, good, that's good. "'Even the demons believe that and shudder. James was trying to make a different point, but his point stands nonetheless that even the demons know that there is one God. So there's not three gods, there's not five gods, there's not a a Mount Olympus with a a gaggle of gods. There's one God, creator, sustainer, and ruler of all. Number two, God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, we have to ask at the beginning of this message, does the word Trinity ever show up in the Bible? What do you think? Is the word Trinity ever found in the Scriptures? And the answer is no. The word Trinity is not in our English Bible so if somebody, says the word, if somebody says that the word Trinity didn't come around until four or 500 years after Jesus, uh, in some sense they're right. The word itself didn't come around until four or 500 years after Jesus. But the concept of the Trinity goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. We'll see this in a minute. You say, well then how did we get our word Trinity? Well, Jesus' very words in John 14 through 17 are that God is unity. Jesus in those four chapters says God is unity. He says the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are in union. They're in unity. And so as the church progressed after Jesus, people, the Christians, begin to say that God is unity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are in unity. Then they begin to say they're in tri-unity. Well, within several hundred years, at least the documents that we've discovered then they begin to say he is not just tri-unity, but he is triune. The word trinity comes into our vocabulary. But the doctrine of the trinity is clearly taught. Genesis 1, 26, all the way back in the first chapter of the Bible. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. A singular God says, let us make man in our image. Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus clearly taught the Trinity in the book of Matthew. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, Peter writes, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ. And then in John chapter 20 and verse 31, we see this call to salvation. Even the very call to salvation implies uh, an understanding or at least not a denial of the Trinity. John 20, 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Now we all, most of us, have Muslim friends. I have Muslim neighbors, Muslim friends, as do you, Muslim coworkers. But while we love those who, with whom we may disagree, let us never say that the Muslim faith is the same as the Christian faith or that they're two different roads leading to the same place. Let us be very, very careful before we would ever say that they're two sides of the same coin and that they say the same thing, for they don't say the same thing, including on this issue. In two different places this week, I found where the Quran actually contradicts the scriptures in this area. In one place, it says, say not Trinity, desist. In other words, stop saying Trinity. It will be better for you, for God is one God. Glory be to him, far exalted is he above, above having a son. Now hang on just a moment, think about that. This verse is saying God has no son. So it's impossible to say that they're saying the exact same thing because they're not. In another place i found that he says, he say he Allah is one, Allah is he on whom all depend. He begets not, nor is he begotten, and none is like him. One of the first verses our, little, our girls memorized when they were really small was John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Let's go back to that slide. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus is the only begotten son of God. So right away, John 3.16 is in contradiction with what the Quran teaches. In other words, according to their teaching, Allah is a single person God, not three persons. In no sins is Allah a father, nor does he have a son. The God proposed in the Muslim faith is different than the God of the Bible. God of the Bible is a God of three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Number three, if you're taking notes, number three, each person is fully God, co-eternal, co-equal, and co-existent. Each person is fully God. So there's God the Father, fully God. God the Son, he's not 50% God, 50% man, but he was 100% God, 100% man, fully God. The Spirit, fully God, co-eternal, co-equal, and coexistent. John chapter one and verse one, Jesus says, or John says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. You say, what about the Spirit? How do we know the Spirit is God? The best passage to prove, there's multiple, but one of the best passages to prove is that the Spirit is God is Acts chapter five, verses three and four. In Acts five, it says, then Peter said, Ananias, It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. If you've not read the story, it's amazing. It'll put the fear of God in your heart. But in Acts 5, 3, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? I won't go into all the detail, but in this passage, lying to the church and lying to other believers, according to the apostle Peter, was the same as lying to the Holy Spirit. So you say, okay, I know he lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourselves some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? And then Peter says this, you have not lied just to human beings, but to whom? To God. So he lied to the Holy Spirit is synonymous with lying to God. Therefore, we see that the Holy Spirit is God. There's a teaching here in the hills of West Virginia, because I was born here, raised here, grew up here. I feel like I can can speak into it maybe a little bit more than someone who's not from here. But there's a teaching that's that's global, but it really seemed at some point to take shape here in West Virginia, and it's the teaching is this, that God is only one person, but he has different modes. And so I remember the first time I heard it, I, I I was working, I was about 15, and I was working for an appliance company here in town, and the guy I was working with was trying to convince me that God is only one person, that in eternity past, he was the father, he was very fatherly, And then he changed his mode for about 32, 33 years and became a son. And then after that, ever since then, for about the last 2,000 years, he's changed his mode again, and now he's the spirit. That teaching is called modalism. And not taking any shots at it, I actually do call it modalism because it's almost like God changes moods. Like he was in a fatherly mood for a while and then for about 32, 33 years he was in a sunny mood and now he's in more of a spiritual mood. Modalism or moodalism. There's so much wrong with that teaching that we'll see in a moment. But what we want to establish is that each person is fully God, co-eternal, co-equal, and co-existent. So if the Trinity is the foundation for our faith, what else does the Bible teach? This is my favorite part this week. This is where I've spent a lot of my time. Number four, the three persons of the Trinity are one in essence, yet distinct in person, dwelling in perfect harmony as three in one, mutually glorifying and loving one another. We'll break that down in a second. This idea though that they have dwelled in perfect harmony, three in one, isn't just like they have been somehow static in eternity past. But according to the Bible and what we're about to look at is there's this dynamic relationship where the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Spirit and the Spirit loves the Son and the Son loves the Father and this has taken place in eternity past. Now think of this, if God were not a Trinity, He could not be eternally and outwardly loving. For all of eternity before creation, he would have had nobody to love. Now, a devout Muslim will point out that Allah is said to have 99 names or titles which describe him in eternity past. One of those names of Allah is Allah the Loving, the Loving. Now, the word in the original Quran, in the Arabic or Syriac, refers not to a self-centered love, but it actually uses this biblical idea of love that Allah is outwardly loving to others. So the word that they chose is an outward love that requires someone else to love. But here's my question. How could Allah have loved others in eternity past before he created there was nothing else in existence for him to love. Perhaps he eternally loved his creation. So we could give him that. Maybe he looked through the corridors of time and eternally loved his creation. But that in itself raises an enormous problem. Because one of the other characteristics of Allah, other than the fact that he is loving, is that he is dependent on nothing. Allah is dependent on nothing. So if it required, in order for him to be loving, outwardly loving to others, if it required him to have a creation, then that means that he is dependent upon his creation. But the Bible says that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in eternity have loved one another with a perfect outward love. If you're taking notes, you want to write this down. Matthew 3, 16 and 17. This is another verse to prove that God doesn't come in modes, but that he is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit simultaneously. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love with whom I am well pleased. John chapter 14, Jesus said, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. John continues, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them think of that truth. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit want to make their home with you. And he's not just talking about heaven. He is talking about you being the literal tabernacle of God. Just as in the Old Testament, God, the Shekinah glory of God, would rest upon the tabernacle and later the temple, God said, Father, Son, Spirit, we want to come and dwell in and with you. John continues, says in verse 31 of chapter 14, Jesus said, I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. In chapter 15, we see John says this in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. We're almost done, but John continues. In chapter 15, verse 26, when the advocate comes, that's the Spirit. So we've talked a lot about the Father and the Son. Now the Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, who's He pointing to? Who is He testifying about? He's pointing and glorifying and loving Jesus, me. And then John continues. John chapter 16, verse 27, know the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. And then in John 17, in verse one, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. You know, John takes a bad rap, the writer John, one of Jesus' early disciples, for being one of the sons of thunder. Early in John's ministry, it seems that he had a hot temper. It seems that John was, was quick to get angry, ready to call down fire from heaven on someone who disagreed with him. But as John matured in the faith, John began to, to highlight the love of God. He saw the love of God in the people around him, and he wrote extensively on the love of God. Later in his epistle, 1 John chapter 4, and verse 7 and 8, He says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Now how in the world could God be love in eternity past? The only way that's possible is because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have loved one another actively forever and ever and ever as far back as our minds can go and as far forward as we can ever imagine. Now, we've covered a lot of doctrinal truth, but we'll break it down in some pictures. Here's some pictures that, that I trust will help you. There's a number of illustrations around that talk about various ways the Trinity can be true. And so we're gonna look quickly at these illustrations and I'm gonna show you why they're, why they're not necessarily accurate. There really is no illustration that can truly sum up the Trinity, but let's look at a few of them. The egg, right? There are some who will say that the egg depicts the Trinity. You've got the shell, you've got the white, and you've got the yolk, this, they say, represents the Trinity. And I appreciate the effort. There's one egg, three parts. The problem with that is that God doesn't have parts, right? It's, it's the the yoke is not 100% the entire egg. And so the egg illustration breaks down, but at least helps. Sometimes it'll help kids kind of wrap their mind up, minds around God. So I'm okay with that. Another illustration or example is the shamrock example. You've got three different leaves, and then you've got one shamrock. You've got one clover. always wondered how that illustration worked out when you have a four-leaf clover. That's what we were always looking for as kids, uh, but I, I see where they're going with that. That's an illustration. It's not completely accurate, but, but it's still an illustration. There's another illustration of the Trinity, and that is the water example, how that water, like all matter, has three states. They're solid, a liquid, and a gas. And so some will say that God is, is like this. He's The Spirit is like the gas and the Son and, and the Father. I, I get where they're going. The problem is that's a little bit modalistic because it can only be in one form, to my knowledge, at one particular time. There's one, one example that I do think is good, and it, we call it the Trinity Shield. The Trinity Shield. It's about 1,500 years old, and so it came along several hundred, several hundred years after Jesus, along with the Athanasian Creed, but it, is, it goes like this. You've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you could say it this way. The Father is not the Son. That's accurate. The Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father, But yet, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. In my opinion, this is the closest example that we can get to wrapping our minds around the Trinity, which is why I think it's lasted for about 1,500 years. The problem is, the reason I don't like it completely is because it has four circles. (laughs) You get a fourth circle in there, but you get the idea. There is no way our minds can completely, our mortal minds, wrap our head around the Trinity, and that's okay. So instead of us trying to completely dissect it and completely understand it, my goal and encouragement to you is that you'll just worship. I would not want to worship a God that I could understand. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to title this six-part series, Overwhelmed, because I believe that so many of us are overwhelmed right now with life. We're overwhelmed with school, we're overwhelmed with children, we're overwhelmed with the burdens of the pandemic and quarantines and so forth. And the only way for us to combat being overwhelmed with something on earth is to be overwhelmed with something greater. So let's be overwhelmed. We don't have to figure God out. Psalm 27 verse four says, gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek Him in His temple. That's a beautiful goal with the Trinity. So why is having the right view of the Trinity so important to our faith? Why is it so deeply connected to our faith? Three reasons and we'll be done. Number one, The Trinity lays the foundation for our view of creation. There are far more than three things, but these are the three biggies that I wanted to hit in this message. The Trinity lays the foundation for our view of creation. Our triune God has created all things. By nature, he transcends his creation and dwells eternally outside of time, space, and matter because he is infinite in holiness, perfection, and glory. Psalm 102 says that God created, he laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of his hands. Creation changes daily, but God never changes. In Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25, uh, the writer says, God made everything and gives life and breath to everything and he needs nothing. 2 Peter 3, 8, a day to us us is like a thousand years to God. By choice, even though God transcends his creation, God's not part of the creation. He's outside of it in that he made it just like you might make a Lego set or a toy car or a model airplane. God is outside of it. Yet, God is fully present with his creation. He loves to interact with his creation, displaying his goodness, his love, his justice, and his mercy. In the very first paragraph of the Bible, you see the Holy Spirit hovering over raw creation. Whatever that looked like, the Spirit was interacting with an unformed earth. In John 1, God becomes flesh and dwells among us. Philippians 4.5 says that God is near. And Colossians 1.17 says that Jesus holds all things together. I believe this with all my heart. If we will have eyes to see... If we'll just look at the life that God has given us, I'm convinced in the creation around us, we will see the fingerprints of God all over the place. We'll begin to notice that all of creation was designed to interact with other aspects of creation. We see it in the stars, Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, but we also see it in the, the smallest molecule or atomic particle We see it in the way our our dogs play or our pets, if if you're not a dog person, the way our pets play with one another. We see it in the way that we desire relationship. All the fingerprints of God are all over creation. The reason that we desire to be loved The reason that we desire everything from a a morning hot cup of coffee to a nice drive through the country or a nice day at the beach or the reason we're drawn to bonfires and dinners with friends or, or sex or sports is because God's creation bears these fingerprints. We were designed to relate and interact with the world around us which by the way is the number one reason that I think this pandemic is so hard. Because right now we're not interacting with very many people. That's why I believe depression, why I believe that anxiety is so hard for so many of us, because we can't even even shake hands. We can't go to our, our mom's house and give her a hug. This is not the way we were designed to be. And I'm not making a political statement with that statement. It's just simply that we are grieving. Even this very pandemic points to the reality of God because he created us to be relational. And we know something's not right. What's not right is that we're not able to fully reflect and live into the design of the Trinity, the unity we're supposed to have with God's creation Carl Barth says the trinity of God is the secret of his beauty. The trinity lays the foundation for creation, but secondly, the trinity lays the foundation for the Christian life. This is individually and corporately. You say, how does the, the trinity lay the foundation for the Christian life? You know, it's the spirit that specifically, according to Romans 5, 5, is the one who gives you the capacity to love According to Romans 14, 17, it's the Spirit who gives you the capacity to have joy. According to 2 Corinthians 3.18, all three are involved, all three persons of the Trinity. We, as we get into the Bible seeking to know God the Father, we, we find in the Bible descriptions of God the Son. And according to 2 Corinthians 3.18, it's the Spirit that changes us from the inside out. According to Galatians 5, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the evidence of the Spirit that's created love and joy and peace and forbearance and kindness and goodness and self-control. But not only is this something that happens to us individually as we read the Bible and pray and and spend time with the Lord, but it's something that happens to us corporately as well. Together as a church, God changes us through the person of the Father, the person of the Son, and the person of the Holy Spirit. In James 5.16, he writes, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The reason here at Bible Center, we encourage you to get into a group, we encourage you to make spiritual friends isn't because we wanna grow the church. The reason we encourage you to, to get with other Christian believers, whether it be in one of our classes or one of our groups or someone other Christian that you know from work or somebody in your family, the reason we don't want anybody to be alone is because God didn't create you to be alone. This is more than just wanting to grow our church. This is more than just running a program. You were created for community. And you and I can't thrive without community. On my worst weeks, on my worst days, when I go in my community group, it might be hard and there are times where I might bail. And I have bailed. But I've never left a time together with friends, spiritual friends, what my heart wasn't renewed and encouraged for the journey ahead the trinity lays the foundation for creation for the christian life but number three and lastly the christian lays the trinity lays the foundation for our view of the cross at its very core god is outgoing and loving at its very core god is a life-giving god And the triune God is not a God who hoards life, but He's a God who gives away life. And there is never a moment that the Trinity was more fully revealed than on the cross. You see, God created this world, this triune God created this world to represent Him in perfect love, but we turn that love in on ourselves. According to the Bible, we begin to have selfish love, conceited love. Adam and Eve led the way, but we were quick to follow. And according to the book of James, the problem isn't just out here, but the problem, if we're honest, is in here. We're all tempted when we're drawn away of our own lusts and enticed. But John 3.16 says, God, the triune God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Amazingly, at the cross, Jesus wasn't bound against His will and dragged to His death, but He willingly laid down His life. There was never a moment that the Trinity was more fully revealed than on the cross. You see, that's the only way God could be a savior. That's the only way God could be both the judge and the judged. That's the only way He could say, No, I'm going to give you my eternal life and my righteousness, and I'm going to take your punishment. The only way is if God is a trinity. So I want to encourage you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today, commit your life to Christ. Christian, live for Christ, live for the Lord. He is God, He is holy, and He is Trinity. And as our big idea said at the beginning, the Trinity is the foundation of our faith. For more information, visit us at Biblesetterchurch.com or check us out on social media. You can also join us in person for services on Thursday at 7 p.m. or Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m.